Lord God, this evening we join with those angels and shepherds glorifying you and praising you for these good deeds that you've done. Lord, I pray that you would help it to sink deeply into our hearts. I ask that you would help me now as I preach and for each one of us, Lord, to respond appropriately to such good news. I ask it in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, every year at Christmas, I find this need to to call the church to reflect on how significant Christmas is and to break through all the other things and get down to brass tacks, so to speak. But this year, as I was thinking about it, I realized that in my mind, and maybe in yours, there's a tendency to jump kind of past the birth of Jesus to get on to the real stuff. In other words, his death, his resurrection. I mean, after all, the Apostle Paul summarizes his entire preaching ministry in the words, we preach Christ and him crucified. Not necessarily we preach Christ and him incarnate. So I'd like to pause a little bit and not just breeze over this, but let the full gravity of it weigh down upon our hearts. God became man. The baby that was in the manger is the same being through whom the entire universe was created. This is monumental. So let's let it sink in a little bit tonight. And to help us reflect upon it, I'm going to ask you a a question, actually two questions, and you decide which one is more significant. Is it um, more likely that the author of life would rise on the third day and couldn't be held in death, or that the one who made man would become a man? The first question makes sense, right? You can't hold the author of life down. He's going to spring forth in life. But the one who made mankind then took humanity into himself, became a man, that's, that's a little different. It's a little harder to embrace. And I'll, I'll acknowledge that Christianity is hard on a number of points to believe. I mean, it's not that it goes against reason, but it definitely goes beyond reason. It asks us to stretch to understand things that go beyond what our reasoning can do. And I was reading um, a famous book called Knowing God by the Anglican scholar J.I. Packer. He has an entire chapter on the incarnation. And he makes the point that if you really grasp the identity of Jesus and what his incarnation, his birth in Bethlehem means, you won't have such a hard time embracing the easier things. I chuckled when I read his list of the easier things. He included on that the virgin birth, A woman who'd never been with a man suddenly has a baby. The resurrection itself, the idea, uh, not the idea, the truth that on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. He puts this in the easy category. He mentions the atonement, that his death on the cross paid for all the sins of humanity. And then he mentions the miracles of Jesus, you know, walking on water, feeding 5,000, these kind of things. And he calls those the easy things. But I think his, his point is important. It's a really staggering claim that Jesus of Nazareth was and is God-made man. If you get your head wrapped around that, those other things kind of logically make sense. If Jesus was God, as Christianity affirms, then of course he walked on water. Of course the, the virgin birth happened. Of course he rose. But it's that first part. Let me read something from Packer's chapter. He says, he quotes John 1.14 and says, the word became flesh, the word referring to Jesus as God's word. He says, God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless 
human baby, unable to do more than lie there and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and to be changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. This is the real stumbling block in Christianity, not those other easier truths. Now, our text tonight, as every Christmas Eve, is Luke chapter 2. Luke's telling us how the birth actually happened. And there are so many really great nuggets in there. Different sermons can be preached from it. I've preached different ones. Tonight, I want to focus in on two things. I want to look at the providence of God, and I want to look at the price of what he did, the providence and the price. Keep in mind that a whole bunch of people were being used by God to accomplish God's purposes unknowingly, unwittingly, like Caesar Augustus, the innkeeper, all the people staying in that hotel in Bethlehem that night. Caesar, Luke starts right out, and he says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be registered. So, by the way, Luke, who's writing this gospel, just put a historical time stamp on this. This is not once upon a time cueing us in that he's about to give a fairy tale. In those days, a decree went out from a real Caesar, who's a historical figure. He even mentions the governor of Syria was Quirinius. I mean, he really is saying this happened in real time. This actually literally happened. Why did Caesar put out this census? I'm almost sure it was for money. Right? He wanted to know what his tax basis was. He wanted what's due to him as the emperor in Rome. But God had a different plan. God was using it for something totally other. God was using it to fulfill something he prophesied 750 years earlier through the prophet Micah. Micah 5.2 tells us where the Messiah would be born. Let me read it to you. Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Ancient days because Jesus is the eternal son of God who has existed forever, the creator of all things. He was entering into the world and it would be in Bethlehem. God declared that through Micah 750 years before it happened. Caesar's census just lined it up perfectly because... Joseph and Mary were from Nazareth up in the north. They were living in Nazareth, I should say. But he was from Bethlehem, and they had to go down to their hometown to be registered. Luke tells us that's why they were there. So the famous journey of of a pregnant Mary with Joseph down to Bethlehem lines up perfectly to fulfill something God said would happen 750 years ago. And think about it. When when they got to Bethlehem, there were other things being fulfilled too. The, The Hebrew word Bethlehem literally means house of bread. Jesus in his public ministry would say, if anyone is hungry, let him come to me. I am the bread of life. Here was the bread of life being born in the house of bread. Not only that, it's called the city of David. Centuries prior, a young shepherd boy was out on those same hills tending his sheep when the powerful prophet Samuel came and called him back to his house to anoint him with oil to be the second king of Israel. And who is the son of David? Who is the one who will sit on David's throne forever? It's the Messiah. It's Jesus. All of this was providence. God was working what God does through and in and even even despite evil, he was working his plan and bringing forth what he wanted to have happen. 
Our God is a God of providence. He is in the details, not just back then, but even today. Consider also the hotel situation in Bethlehem, right? I mean, we've read it so often, most of us. If you've grown up in church or you've been to Christmas services a lot, you kind of know the story and you know what's coming and you don't pause to think about how awful that was for Mary and Joseph. Could you imagine tending to your pregnant girlfriend or wife or, I guess, fiance technically, and she's, she can't get a room in a hotel, and the innkeeper, the best he can offer is the downstairs room where they keep the animals? I mean, that was terrible. If you were there, could you possibly sleep upstairs knowing that there's some pregnant lady down in the lobby giving birth? Wouldn't you give up your room and say, no, no, I'll sleep down in the stable area. You, you take this room. Just what was going on? Well, I mean, supply and demand. Obviously, all the rooms were taken. I imagine it was late at night, right? I imagine the innkeeper had a terrible day. You know, it doesn't take too much when you have supply and demand problems, you have a lack of patience, and it's late at night for all your common humanity, if you will, to go out the window, and you become selfish, and it gets dark and evil. I mean, do you guys remember... I don't know, this is a dated, dated reference, but do you remember the character Elmo from, from Sesame Street? 25 years ago today, a doll came out called Tickle Me Elmo, and it was the must-have toy of Christmas, and there were all these news stories of parents lining up on Christmas to buy this doll, and there weren't enough of them because no one thought it was going to have a run like this, and there were fights, and there was anger, and it was just, it was bad. It made the news, Right? I imagine something like that must have happened in Bethlehem. But again, providentially, God knew what he was doing because it was also prophetic and symbolic the way that Jesus was coming into this world. If you are God and you're going to send your son into the world, you can pick the way you want it to happen. I mean, really, he he could have come into the world like Moses did and been raised in Pharaoh's house with all the finest linens and all the languages and all the tutors and everything. But he didn't. That's because it was prophetic about what Jesus' ministry was going to be like. He was entering into a dark situation of sin and brokenness, and he was coming as the Savior. It pointed to what was going to happen on the cross. It pointed ahead to things. In fact, in John's gospel, the, the chapter one, John writes this, the true light, he's referring to Jesus, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. You know, in the pageant, when the kid knocks at the door and the innkeeper says, no room, it's really cute, but it was actually showing us something about the Savior's ministry. He was coming to a place where he would be rejected, that was in sin and darkness, and he was coming to bring light. That was part of God's providence. How Jesus was born told us something about what he had to do. Also, let's consider the price. I don't really know how to put a price tag on what it cost Jesus because, frankly, as the eternal son of God, he existed in heaven in perfect glory with the Father and the Spirit forever. There is no beginning to God. And so at some point, he said, let there be light, and the universe was made. But before that, they had perfect harmony in heaven. At a certain point, in a certain date that Luke dates for us, God became man. Jesus entered in. He took humanity into the Godhead and something changed. What did that cost him? I just don't even really know. I don't even think when we get to heaven, we'll know quite what it cost him. But it was a lot. 
But we can guess what it cost some other people, because it didn't just cost God something, it cost Mary and Joseph something as well. When she said yes to God's call in her life, what happened? Well, for one, a virgin, probably teenager, suddenly was pregnant. There's a lot of shame around that. You know, when, in, the, in the earlier chapter of Luke, it's not that she says, how will this happen? I'm a virgin. She literally says to the angel Gabriel, how will this, ha- how will this be? I do not know a man. Lest we get confused about the noun virgin and what that might mean, she's explicit. I do not know a man. How will this happen? And she's told, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The power of God will come upon you because what's going to be born will be holy. And so through the Holy Spirit, this is the Son of God, but through Mary, it's also the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. But think about her situation. Their culture was way better at shame than ours. We just overlook everything. But for a pregnant teenager with that story, I mean, what did she tell her mother? Mom, I promise, I'm still a virgin. This is not from Joseph, it was from God. I mean, come on parents, you've heard excuses for stuff. Like, that's not believable. And so Mary would learn quickly, I just can't even admit the truth. And so I just have to let people either assume Joseph doesn't have self-control, or if his story that it wasn't him holds true, then people assume that I'm just promiscuous or whatever. I mean, the shame was so heavy. In fact, it stayed, that, that rumor stayed with Jesus' ministry even after his resurrection. In, in his uh, ministry as an adult, in John, John's gospel, in John chapter 8, he's having a discussion with the religious leaders, and they are not receiving him. And he says, that's because you're of your father, the devil. And then they come back with a snarky reply, and they say, we were not born of sexual immorality. That's John chapter 8, verse 41. And I'm pretty sure they were referring to the rumors about Mary's conception. In fact, even after Jesus' resurrection, the Jewish Talmud has explicit statements about that in it. That was the rumor that was circulated, is that it, well, these rumors about sexual immorality, right? There was a cost to Mary to say yes. There was a cost to Jesus to enter into our world. And frankly, there's a cost to anyone who will follow. Now, tonight, I'm asking you not just to think about this stuff, but to actually believe it. And if you believe it, there will be a cost to you. In fact, there are two things I'd like you to consider if you agree that this is true, that Jesus is the Son of God who became incarnate and was made man in Bethlehem. One is that you have to acknowledge he came as our Savior, meaning the world is dark, and it's sinful and broken, and we need a Savior. And the reason it's sinful and dark and broken is because we're sinful people. We're causing that problem, and we can't fix it. So we needed him to come. He had to come and be our Savior. So we need to repent of that and surrender our own lordship over to him and say, Jesus, you've got to be my Lord. I can't do it, because when I try and lead my life, I make a mess of it. I can't fix my heart problem, but you can. That's why you came. So the first part is that surrender. And what he does then is he will make his followers light. He says you to his disciples, you are the light of the world. You're like a city that's on a hill that cannot be hidden because its light goes out to all around it. So what God is going to do if you believe this and surrender your life to him is he'll start working in you and you will be able to give witness to that to other people and the gospel will go forward from one generation to the next to the next, just like the psalm said. It's how God has been propagating his church in this world by making his followers light in a dark world. 
We're bearers of good news, if you believe this. And the second thing, that's the price, right? The price is the cost of discipleship, of repenting and asking him to be your Lord. You've got to lay down control. You've got to throw your crown down at his feet and let him be the prince of peace and the king of kings. That's, that's about the price. But the providence as well, and this is, I think, where it gets kind of cool, is God is still acting in the details of your life. Whether you acknowledge it or not, you are being used by him whether you acknowledge it or not. So much better when you acknowledge it, when you willingly come under his providence and you say, okay, Lord, work through my life. You know, we call them God sightings a lot of time. It's a coincidence that actually isn't really a coincidence. I know many of your stories, you have these God sightings that happen from time to time, some more frequent than others. Expect them, even pray for them. Because God is a God of providence. He's sovereign. He's ruling in the details of your life. And I'd like to conclude by giving you just a simple story that recently happened in my own family. About three weeks ago, December 9th, my daughter decided she wanted to run an ultra marathon, which is 50 miles. She was going to run from Flagler to Daytona Beach. And I I was driving the the minivan, my wife's minivan, and we had a support crew in there, and we had water, and we had all this kind of stuff. And she needed a support crew for a distance like that. And I prayed in the morning before we left our driveway. I said, Lord, we'd really like to be a blessing to somebody else. Today, let us bless somebody else. I assumed I was kind of the savior figure with my minivan and all the water and the cooler and the food. I'm going to go be, you know, that guy that helps other runners, that people are in need. But I didn't pray specifically on how it was going to work, but I sincerely wanted to be a blessing. So... You know, we get there, and, and three miles into the race, we see this, um, this woman doesn't have any marking on her car, and there were rules. You got to put your race number on all sides of your car. There's a big caution runner sign, tape, paint on the windows, all that stuff. We looked ridiculous in the van. Um, but there's this car, and this woman looked confused, and, and she was asking, kind of like, how, how does this work? And she saw, obviously saw that we were a support crew. So my wife says, go help her. Like, would you get some of our tape and at least write her son's name? His name was Ray. Write Ray on the back windshield. And she didn't even know his race number, um, but he was 20. It was his birthday. So I wrote 20 on the window. I gave him a number. You know, a 20-year-old son isn't prone to give enough information to his mother. And we helped her, and she was on her way. 20 miles or so later, somewhere around mile 27, I guess it was, it's now dark. We're on a remote stretch of A1A down near Daytona somewhere. Hannah goes off refreshed. We get in the car, load everything up, I hit the start, totally dead car, batteries shot, even the hazards like dim down and die. And I, th- I was like, oh my goodness, you know, I don't have tools, I don't, I don't have jumper cables, I'm in my wife's minivan, I haven't thought this through, and I'm, I'm fighting the shame, the internal shame of failing, and then I'm also um, just trying to figure out, do we call AAA, do I get an Uber, and a car pulls up behind us. It turns out it was Yoli, the woman, I didn't even know her name at this point, and I came right out and said, hey, can you help us? Our battery's dead. What's your name? You know, and I kind of meet her, and um, we end up, my daughter Ellie gets in the car with her, and we go for two hours to get a battery from Advanced Auto. I'm on the phone, anxiety, anxiety, and at some point I realized, after about the third or fourth time I told her that she was like an angel from heaven to help us, she said no. Every time she said no. You guys are blessing me. I pulled over because I recognized your car. There was some creeper guy in a truck that kept following me. I'm alone. It's dark. It's remote. I just, I'm so thankful for the company. Ellie's up in the front seat chatting her up. And I mean, I, I realized, oh, this was the answer to the prayer. Like providentially, my battery had to die so we could connect up with her so we could be a blessing to her. 
I mean, it was, it was awesome. In fact, at one point, she grew so comfortable with us, she said, we saw a sushi restaurant. She said, you know what, half joking, you know, why don't, why don't you drop Ellie and I off here and take my car and go get the battery and come get us later? I didn't, I'd never met this woman before, and she wanted to give me her car. Of course, she had my daughter as collateral, so it was, <laughs> she knew I wasn't going to go far. But, you know, there was a price to it, but God's providence was all over that. It was incredible, you know? And that's what he does. He's in those little details. A woman needed to be comforted and encouraged. I asked that we'd be a blessing. It worked differently than I thought, but that's what God does. I mean, think about Mary, who can't tell her secret of God's work in her life. She's just given birth in a town that's not the one where her family is, and they don't believe her anyway. So what does God do? He sends angels to shepherds who then come in great excitement and find this baby in the manger, and they say, angels from heaven told us this is the Savior. What comfort to somebody in need that must have been to her, right? How awesome is that? So this evening, we celebrate and marvel that God became man. Jesus took on flesh to save us. There is a price to discipleship for sure, but God is providentially working in your life, even the details that got you here tonight. And I want to ask, will you open your heart to him and become his disciple? Would you pray with me? Lord, I'm thankful for your work in our lives, even when we don't know it. I'm thankful for Christmas. I'm thankful for your incarnation. Lord, would you help us to understand how staggering this is and that we would have the faith to go beyond reason and into some of these other things, your resurrection, your miracles, the virgin birth. Thank you for all of this. It is a story that we will tell for all eternity. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.